Dearest fuckettes, it's Lauren. I'm sure you're wondering why this isn't an emergency episode dedicated to the end just like that season 2 trailer or the news that Kim Cattrall will be returning to the show and that's because we pre-recorded this episode as Chelsea is up north visiting her parents. We promise we will be recording a Patreon episode about our uncensored thoughts on all of these matters as soon as humanly possible. We're sorry, we can't, don't hate us. In the meantime, let's kick it back to where it all began. Please enjoy our rewatch episode of The Pilot. Hi, I'm Lauren Garoni. And I'm Chelsea Fairless. And for the upcoming 25th anniversary of Sex and the City, we have decided to rewatch The Pilot. And by upcoming, you mean the 25th anniversary is this Tuesday, June 6th. This is true. The Pilot is titled Sex and the City. It's certainly much closer to Candace's column than other episodes of the show. It was directed by our love Susan Seidelman, who directed Desperately Seeking Susan, Smithereens, most importantly, She-Devil. For you, most importantly, yes. The pilot is interesting. I mean, like many shows, it's not necessarily this way, especially in the era of streaming. Usually they greenlight a show and you do the entire season. But this was very much a proof of concept that was shot a year before they even went back to shoot the first season. So much so that Sarah Jessica Parker forgot that she had filmed this. And she has a completely different hairstyle. And a completely different apartment. Which we will get into. So this episode starts with the story of Elizabeth, an English journalist who comes to New York. Every single time I watch this, I forget how much screen time this story gets. It is wild to dedicate the first five minutes of a show to a character you will never see again. (laughs) Carrie describes Elizabeth as attractive and bright, but she's also clearly loaded as she is traveling with at least six pieces of Louis Vuitton luggage. Like she's Andre Leon Talley or some shit. But in a New York yellow cab for some reason. Like, I guess she spent all the money on the Concorde and couldn't get a, a private car. She meets Tim, an investment banker at a gallery opening, and they have a whirlwind two-week romance. I would say that this is the first lie that Sex in the City taught me, which is that, well, one, you just meet available men at art galleries, and within two weeks you are touring apartments and getting an invitation to meet the family. You know, I have never met anyone at a gallery opening. Do you know how many fucking gallery openings I've been to? Yes. It's so fucked up. You've been to 317. I've counted them all, Chelsea. He takes her to look at a townhouse together, and the realtor asks if they have children, and Tim says... Not yet, which is the most sociopathic thing a person could say to someone that they plan on dumping. A very crazy thing to say objectively 10 days into dating someone. True. This is a preoccupation that Sex and the City has with real estate related dates. Because there is another episode in season one where Samantha ends up fucking her real estate agent. But I also think all the time about how Vince Vaughn in the L.A. episodes takes Carrie out to look at a $3 million home for a lunch date. Right. And as a real estate freak that you know that I am, 
and a formerly single lady. I've not been to one single date at an open house, Chelsea. I don't think we're going out with people that are like that rich. Like, that's crazy. But again, on succession, there was not one date. <laughs> At an open house? I don't know. Is this what the wealthy are doing? I feel like Sex in the City has always explored the interplay between romance and finance. And this is a perfect example. Like, this is where the show begins. Sort of yeah. setting up this sort of fantasy of, you know, you're going to be a, a successful woman with a career, but you still need to meet some guy that's even richer than you so you can get the townhouse and whatnot. Oh, yeah. That's the only lesson I took from Sex and the City. Was <laughs> I mistaken? <laughs> so he asks her to dinner with his parents, and then he says that he has to rain check because his mom is sick. And two weeks later... <laughs> no, no, no. You're missing the best part, which is he rain checks, and then when she's pissed off about it, they have her on a set where they have one of those rain windows where it's quite literally raining when she's mad that he's lied about rain checking the stage. I actually really liked that. And also, I don't know if you noticed, but there's like a million copies of Time magazine. So she's presumably in the Time magazine office yeah. because she's a journalist of some kind. That's what I took from it. And then we learn that she is telling a still unseen Carrie Bradshaw this story. And I completely Mandela affected this because I knew that obviously in season one, Carrie talks to camera. I swore that when she ends her story, Carrie turns to camera and goes, and that's what you get for being in love in New York or whatever her first line is. It's still a voiceover. We only get the back of her curly <laughs> brunette head. <laughs> also, I want to talk about this actress because no shade, but she is very obviously... Australian and not British. Let's just play a clip of the scene. He never did call, of course. Bastard. She told me one day over coffee. I don't understand. In England, looking at houses together would have meant something. There is something so fundamentally campy about Australians concealing their accents. Like, obviously, Nicole Kidman is a prime example of this. And they all end up sounding like Marianne Williamson. <laughs> You know, it's like very proper sounding, but there's this weird cadence or like emphasis on the wrong words right. that just makes it very specific and bizarre. But I'm here for it. Did you try to make tattoo this dialogue? Uh, no, I did not. I don't understand. In England, looking at houses together would have meant something. <laughs> when the economy was good and Tony Blair was prime minister and Clinton was president, is this what the rich were doing on dates? I know I can't get off of this, but <laughs> I need to understand. Is this still a voiceover? The welcome to the age of uninnocence? Yes, this is when we get the first introduction of Carrie Bradshaw. It starts as a voiceover, and then we quickly realize that she is writing her latest article. Right, and she says, Welcome to the age of uninnocence. No one has breakfast at Tiffany's, and no one has fares to remember. Directly taken from Candace's column, and it's very good. Instead, apparently, we have breakfast at 7 a.m. and affairs we try to forget as quickly as possible. The latter, I believe, but I'm sorry, we're having breakfast at 7 a.m.? Yeah, that doesn't make sense. Carrie's not up at 7 a.m., and I feel like New York women just don't eat breakfast. Like, you eat coffee. It's not like a pro-Anna thing. Like, it's just like a 
lifestyle thing. Yeah, and certainly not Carrie Bradshaw, who writes a single column weekly. Carrie, of course, has her cynical moments about love and dating throughout the course of this show, but there's a real grittiness to her character in the pilot that kind of is unique to the pilot. It never comes back. Even the way that she stamps out her cigarette in an ashtray in that scene, it's giving the vibes of like, a detective in like a film noir movie that has this very like I've seen it all and I've lived to tell the tale sort of mentality about it. Oh yeah, she's quite literally a private dick. Yeah. Then we find her in her apartment typing. She writes about how New York women are successful. They pay their taxes. They spend $400 on a pair of Manolo Blahnik strappy sandals. Okay, I would like to get into this because from the pilot, truly, I mean, we previously did the Tatum O'Neill, A Woman's Right to Shoes episode, where in six years, Manolo's have gone from $400 to $486. I did put it in the inflation machine. (laughs) And $400 in 1997 money compared to 2023 still would only make a pair about $700. Manolo Blahniks are currently like $800 to $900. Okay. They never were $400. What are you saying? They were $500? They were not $300. No. They were always expensive. Yes. But now I feel like shoes are just maybe basic Manolo shoes are still in the same ballpark, but I feel like shoes in general are now like thousands. Not hundreds. Absolutely. Now Carrie's back on the street talking to camera. It's like the riddle of the Sphinx. Ay, ay, ay. I guess this answers our age-old question, which is, are the topics of the episode in Carrie's column because she unveils her latest column, which is Unmarried Women, Toxic Bachelors. What I found so fascinating about watching this, the pilot episode, is honestly how much dynamics haven't changed in single metropolitan area dating. But the thing I think that's changed the most is that we don't call them toxic bachelors. We just call them fuckboys now. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. And then we meet several of the toxic bachelor sources for Carrie's article at the gym. And one of them was like, guys don't want women over 35 because you have to have kids right away. And I was like, oh, I've actually never thought about that. And that explains a lot. Like, that makes a lot of sense. I'm not saying that it's right. Oh, yeah. That's a lot of men's logic. That's also Capote Duncan, by the way, who says that. Oh, I didn't put that together. Capote Duncan has a name like a Gossip Girl character, for one thing. I mean, I believe there's a man named Capote and a man named Duncan on the Upper East Side. I do not believe there's a man with both names. Evidently, what women want was Alec Baldwin. Not true in 2023. Interesting to name check Alec Baldwin because during the course of Sex and the City, Kristen Davis would go on to date him. Yeah, like what era was that, though? And do you remember how long they were together for? 2001-ish? I think she also dated Liev Schreiber, which would explain why he never ended up as a boyfriend on Sex and the City, because... Right, that makes no sense. That he... It makes no sense that he wouldn't have been a boyfriend of the week. Yes. Yes. That's crazy. Yeah, we always, like, want to post, like, weird throwback photos of, like, the Sex and the City actresses and the weird guys, weird famous guys they've dated, but then we're like, is it going to, like, traumatize them? Like, I don't know what SJP's relationship with Robert Downey Jr. is currently like, (laughs) you know? Well, we've also wanted to do a post that we just never did, which was late 90s actors that should have been boyfriends of the week who weren't. 
Like, I always say Henry Rollins. Yeah, that would have been good. Chris Maloney, of course. Chris Maloney really needed to be Samantha's love interest. He is exactly her type. Although we did get a very Chris Maloney-looking actor who plays the, like, wrestling coach, and I think my motherboard myself. Right, right. Anyway, back to the pilot. We get the introduction of Miranda and Charlotte. Miranda is at a quintessential New York lunch buffet, and she's gesticulating wildly with a pair of salad tongs, which I think is an incredible, brilliant choice on Cynthia's part. And she tells the story about a woman that turned 41 and then could never get a date again and had a nervous breakdown and had to move back to Wisconsin and live with her mother. Sad shit. The other thing that feels so realistic to now, realistic in the sense that this is kind of how a certain cross-section of men still speak about is when one of the guys is like there's not one woman in new york who hasn't turned down 10 wonderful guys because they were too short too fat too poor and then miranda's like i've dated them all the poor fat short ones and they're just as like self-obsessed as the hot ones or something to that effect. Yeah, right? they're, they're just as self-centered and unappreciative as the good-looking ones. Also, I don't know if you noticed, but when we meet Charlotte, she's in what looks like the back room of a gallery that has some sort of like fabulous library of art books and what looks to be a Richard Prince joke painting behind her. I love the idea that in this universe, Charlotte could be representing Richard Prince. Ooh, we were robbed of such a rich... <laughs> storyline of Charlotte's art career. Like Charlotte discovers Richard Prince and then Gagosian poaches him. It seems that Charlotte has such a progressive art sense and yet such a rigid idea of dating. Yeah, because in this scene, she's literally like, guys are intimidated by smart, successful women, so it's best to just keep your mouth shut. Like, that's literally what she says. Then we meet Skipper, the original incel who is on the Mad Magazine GeoCities site. Well, he is a website designer, so I assume he is designing those Angel Fire GeoCity websites for companies. And he says that because there's no physical space in New York, there's no space for romance, which is and isn't true, right? Like, I think New York is a very romantic city, if you never have to leave the Upper West Side, you're really rich and you can kind of just live in that Woody Allen fantasy of a Manhattan romance. Which the early seasons of Sex and the City are obsessed with Woody Allen's concept of New York. But again, another thing that I think is still very relevant is nice guys, quote unquote nice guys, talking about how they can't find a good woman. Although most quote unquote nice guys are actually like horrible misogynists. I genuinely think Skipper is a good guy. And I was rewatching the pilot with Paul and we were pontificating of like, where do we think Skipper went? And I think he got out of this madness and like married a great woman and moved to Portland or something. I hope he found love. When did they phase him off? I mean, season two, certainly. Yeah, but. at some point in season two, because Miranda meets Steve in season two at a club called Denial, which is another thing that I miss about Sex and the City was their amazingly accurate fake club <laughs> names. Yeah, we'll get into club chaos in a bit. But I think Skipper is kind of onto something. It's almost touching upon there's something uniquely horrifying about being single in New York because you are physically surrounded by people all the time. You are correct. At least in Los Angeles, you're like, well, where am I supposed to meet these people? I'm always in my house or in my apartment or in my car. There's 
such a unique pain to wanting to be in a serious relationship or a long-term relationship and then constantly being like physically surrounded by people but feeling extremely alone? Or do we feel that way because we spent our adolescence watching Sex in the City <laughs> and believing that you just meet hot people at the bank or at art galleries? That could be part of it. I generally just think it is kind of a... I don't know. It depends on your mindset. Like, obviously, some people would say it's a great city to be single in. And sometimes it is. But sometimes it's very depressing if you are a romantic type like Skipper. Watching the pilot with 2023 eyes, it's amazing how many things that are spoken about in the pilot are still relevant, which is dating is trash. It's just a different kind of trash, but it's still trash. You know what doesn't hold up is the amount of body shaming in this episode. Like the part where that guy's like, why doesn't she just date like a big fat tub of lard? Well, Miranda explains, right? <laughs> She's like, I have, and they're shit too. It really shows like his disdain for fat people and women simultaneously. It's some like Patrick Bateman type shit. The casting in the early seasons is interesting. And I don't know if it's one of those things where, you know, an actor in their 20s and the 80s look 40 to us. Like, I don't know if this guy was attractive in 1997 or this is just who they decided to cast. But, you know, he's not a he's not an Austin Butler, let's say. <laughs> this man has very strong opinions about looks. No, he's not. So Miranda is having a drag birthday party at what looks like a Lucky Chang's-esque establishment. This is where we meet Samantha. And she thinks that single women should go out and have sex like a man. Because as she says, this is the first time that women have had as much money and power as men, which... Not true statistically, but fair to say that there's been progress. It at the very least felt that way. Yeah. I also thought it was funny that Carrie has a voiceover where she's like four friends who would have rather done this over a conference call, which just the phrase conference call immediately <laughs> was like, oh, this is the 90s. And of course, during this discussion, Charlotte's like, well, what about romance? And Miranda's like, I dated this poet and then I hated his poetry. It sucked. The sex was good, but then he wanted to read me his poetry, which reminded me again of the LA episodes when Samantha dates the porn star who actually wants to be a poet. Right, I forgot about that. Then they invoke the 90s erotic thriller the last seduction as an example of a woman who has sex like a man and i admit that it's been years since i've seen this film but i mostly remember how fierce her outfits are although i do know that she did fuck some guy up against a chain link fence yeah and of course charlotte hated this film of course i will say it is actually carrie that talks about romance in this scene and we've often talked about how carrie is a, a trash sex columnist and how I think Daddy MPK and Sarah Jessica Parker herself would say that Carrie is a romance or relationship columnist. And it does have its roots even back to the pilot episode. Yeah. So now we're back in Carrie's apartment. And can we talk about Carrie's apartment for a second? Because the apartment in the pilot was not her apartment in the series. And this apartment is very dark and chaotic. 
You don't say. It did look a little different. She has clothes everywhere, magazines on the radiator, Chinese takeout on the bed. This is my favorite, a bottle of champagne next to her computer. Not a glass, a bottle. Can we talk about the computer, which isn't the sleek laptop that she would keep for six years, but that like chunky desktop that we all had. Yeah. She also has some sort of folk art chandelier that looks like it was made from the glassware section of a Salvation Army. And I feel like that could also have been in the friend's apartment. Also, I think the realest thing is the layout of the apartment where it seems that Carrie sleeps on a futon slash couch in the center of the room. She writes out of her kitchen, which has one of those cutouts, right? They put a sad little wall so they can say that it isn't exactly a studio, but it's just a window that looks into a different room in your apartment. Oh, yeah. I had one of those in my last apartment. Of course. So did I. We both lived in railroad apartments. I love how she's also like eating a pint of Ben and Jerry's and chain smoking in bed. It's very... Mary Gates skill, it's giving clinical depression. And it further reinforces my point that real New York it girls live in some degree of squalor, right? Like just to bring it back to Julia Fox's apartment tour. Yeah, I also like the realism that Carrie is probably up all night because there's a blaring neon light in front of the one window that does face out onto the street in her apartment. True. You know, we've read at nauseum about everything to do with sex in the city. I've actually yet to see one explanation about why the apartment changed. If I had to guess, because the apartment in the pilot is realistic, it's maybe one of the most realistic Manhattan apartments committed to film or television. Arguably, it's too realistic. As was the apartment when she fucked the younger guy. Oh, the disgusting apartment. And also, that 20-year-old is played by the actor Timothy Oliphant. (laughs) Right, right, yes. But I would imagine that the cinematographers were like, we can't move the camera in this space. It's too small. Which, by the way, whenever people watch television or movies about apartments in Manhattan that are like, this isn't realistic, it's because you literally cannot fit a camera or move a camera in a realistic New York apartment. As someone that's lived in a New York apartment, I believe that. It is interesting that even from the pilot, they committed to the fact that Carrie was an Upper East Side girl. It was probably true to <laughs> Candace Bushnell, but it feels like she would have been a downtown it girl that was living in Soho or the East Village in the late 90s. It doesn't make sense to live like this on the Upper East Side, unless you're of Grey Garden's age. Perhaps that's the point someone made in between the pilot and the second episode. <laughs> So then we meet Stanford, they're out at lunch, who says, the only place where one can still find love and romance in New York is the gay community. It's straight love that's become closeted. What? I don't know one gay New Yorker that has a worldview like this. (laughs) (laughs) But I appreciate that Stanford feels this way. Another thing that is established in the pilot is Stanford's job and the fact that he has a singular client, which is a male model. 
He has a name, Lauren. It's Derek, the underwear model. He has a billboard in Times Square. Is it Derek Zoolander? And I'm not going to say that Daddy MPK was thinking about the pilot when he wrote in the storyline that Stanford abandons Anthony to go follow his singular client in Japan. It shouldn't have been an influencer. It should have been Derek. (laughs) We should have brought Derek back for that. Derek is huge in Japan. (laughs) I feel like these are the only times in which his job was mentioned, or am I wrong? No, but it feels like maybe... That would be how he met Marcus, even though we don't know how he met Marcus. So then Carrie spots Kurt Harrington, who is giving major poor man's Kevin Bacon vibes. Stanford is a messy bitch because he is the one that points out to Carrie and does the classic don't look, which of course you're going to look. And this guy, toxic bachelor, Carrie slept with him a few times, best sex of her life. Stanford begs her to stay away, but then she decides to test Samantha's theory and have sex like a man. And she does. He goes down on her and then she bails. Yeah, so that was interesting. He was like, well, now it's time for me to get some. And she's like, bye. Rude, but iconic. So she leaves the apartment. And this has always bothered me that... She is clearly leaving an office building. (laughs) Yeah, like people don't live in those sort of midtown high rises, do they? I don't think so. I don't think they do. But anyway, again, as someone that just shot their first film, I get it. You know, sometimes the location, what you can get a permit for doesn't logically make sense to what you've written in the script. So, right. So she's leaving and some rando bumps into her on the street. Her bag falls on the ground. And along comes Mr. Big, John James Preston himself, (laughs) who uh, comes to help her pick up the contents of her bag. I really like the voice over here. Number one, he's very handsome. Number two, he's not wearing a wedding ring. Number three, he knows I carry a personal supply of ultra-texture Trojans with a (laughs) reservoir tip. Thanks a lot. That reservoir tip, gotta have it. Do you think, knowing what we know about Sarah Jessica Parker, that there was a negotiation about like, do I have to say, okay, I'll say, can I say condoms? Do I have to say ultra textured Trojans with a reservoir tip? Yeah, I wonder. But then again, she didn't think the show would actually make it to air. So I'm sure she was like, fuck it. So then Carrie has dinner with Skipper, who admits that he hasn't slept with someone in a year. And Carrie asks him if he's sure he's not gay, which would be a sensitive question today. But in 1998? Yeah, in the late 90s, that was just something you did ask to someone. That was like an edgy joke in a Nancy Myers film. He says he's sensitive and doesn't objectify women. And Carrie then uses the word pussy, which have we ever heard her say that before? That is truly shocking and out of character. Yes, I think as the years go on, Sarah Jessica Parker's sensibilities get fused with Carrie Bradshaw. Again, I think what we dug about the pilot is how gritty it is and how close to Candace the character is in a way that will, I think, diminish as the years go on. Another thing I notice is Skipper is younger than Carrie. Yeah, who has these age gap platonic friendships? It's weird. So... Carrie's back at home. Charlotte calls her. She's bailing on their plans to go to Club Chaos because she has a hot date with a famous bachelor, Capote Duncan. I do love that 
as the show progresses, we give different monikers. To, you know, they're not just like unnamed toxic bachelor. It's like Mr. Pussy. <laughs> like they become New York legends as the episodes go on. Totally. Cut to Club Chaos. Carrie is in a leopard bustier, probably Dolce. Miranda thinks that everyone in the club is too thin. And then Skipper's like, what is this? Like, Undereaters Anonymous. Again, very regressive attitudes towards weight. But I don't understand why Miranda doesn't like his little joke. I know. She's such a bitch to him. It's uncalled for. It is uncalled for. We quite literally wrote a book called We Should All Be Miranda's, but she is out of pocket in this scene. (laughs) He is trying his best he is so then carrie runs into kurt who just went down on her i guess by the way kurt such a 90s name like is anyone named kurt is there a millennial named kurt i guess there should be i'm sure there's a few i think it's more likely that they'll name their children kurt i guess the youngest boomers and eldest gen x would have named their gen z children kurt for kurt cobain although it's dark naming your child kurt in the same way it's dark naming your child Lolita well maybe in a different way but still dark I'm sorry to go off topic but have we ever discussed the fact that Rooney Mara and Joaquin Phoenix named their son River Phoenix okay well that's not dark because that's his brother it is his brother but that's like really heavy to put that legacy on your kid I agree that it is but good name icon gone too soon R.I.P. so anyway Carrie doesn't feel great because she tries to kind of reverse psychology Kurt, but then he's like, oh, that's great. You're finally going to act like me and now you get it and like call me and if I'm single, then maybe we'll fuck. And she's like, oh, this doesn't feel good. Yeah, she starts to feel like shit. She realizes she can't actually have sex like a man. In her voiceover, she wonders, did all men secretly want their women promiscuous and emotionally detached? And let me tell you, in 2023, the answer is still yes. Yeah, the answer is hell yes. But she does ask, and if I really was having sex like a man, why didn't I feel more in control? Which, oof, rewatching that, that like hit me in the solar plexus. Mm. No, I feel that. That shit's heavy. You know, we've all been there. Yeah, she had sex like a man, but it didn't feel good, even though it did feel good. In her soul. She's not cut out for this shit. Yeah, we'll, we'll learn that intimately <laughs> over the next six seasons. <laughs> so Samantha comes up to her and points out Mr. Big. And uh, she says, he's the next Donald Trump, except he's younger and much better looking. Okay, to go back into our history with the account, we started the account in 2016. Also, I don't know if you remember, guys, there was an election in 2016 and Donald Trump won. Do you remember how mad people would get when we would reference Donald Trump literally screen caps from the show and be like, why are you bringing politics into it? It's like he was mentioned from the pilot on. Yeah, he was mentioned in the pilot. Then he was literally on the show. Yeah, in season two. Oh, he was mentioned also again to Friar Fuck as someone that Samantha could get for a benefit. Then he came to the premiere of the film. And I think one of, one of the premieres of the show as well. Of course, he was a New York celebrity before he was ruining democracy. Truly harrowing. So Samantha goes to try and hit on Mr. Big. And then Carrie says the meanest thing in voiceover, which is, 
Samantha had the kind of self-deluded confidence that caused men like Ross Perot to run for president, and it usually got her what she wanted. So rude. But again, I feel like this version of Carrie is much more cynical. In seasons to come, Carrie is much meaner about Samantha, but in not a, as much of a nuanced way. And with not as many uh, great references. Which, by the way, like... Ross Perot did what he did. <laughs> yeah, this reference really does date the show, though. Donald Trump, that's timeless. Ross Perot, I bet half the people listening don't even know what we're talking about. It's really not discussed enough or really ever again that Carrie's relationship with Big started with Samantha wanting to fuck him first. But did Samantha ever tell Carrie, like, I tried to fuck him? Because that's what she does. She goes up... They're all smoking cigars, you know, because it's the 90s and that was such a thing. That was like a hot girl thing where it's like you'd be wearing like a little Calvin Klein dress and then smoking a giant cigar. Yeah, we're referring to in our adolescence just being at a grocery store like with my dad at Vendome Liquors and there would be a cigar aficionado and like Sharon Stone would be on the cover. Yeah, that was a whole ass thing. If Gillian Flynn wrote the Gone Girl speech in the 90s, it would be about smoking a cigar. <laughs> and Samantha's basically filleting the cigar. And then she tells Mr. Big, like, oh, I do the PR for this club. Like, I can take you down to this private room. Do you want a tour? And he's like, hard pass, bitch. Why? But okay. I think that she's too old for him. Do you think so? You think that's what's inferred? Yes. I don't think he likes Samantha's energy. I think in general he wants a more submissive woman. I do not think that is Carrie, though. Maybe more submissive than Samantha, but... At least the early part of Big is definitely someone that wants to be in control of the emotional dynamics. No, that's true. Another thing that is hinted at in the earlier seasons of Sex and the City that we don't get back to is just... A night out at a charity function because we cut back to Charlotte's date with Capote Duncan, which love the idea of a first date is going to a benefit at the Metropolitan Museum. <laughs> Very chic. And Charlotte is trying to play hard to get, but she agrees to go back to his apartment because she wants to look at a painting. Yeah. Who is this artist? Oh, Ross Blechner. Yeah, it's like abstract expressionist. But I've never heard of this artist again. It's just so interesting. He must have been someone of the moment or maybe someone that Darren Starr was friends with. Well, he's a famous artist. Like, it's not crazy, but it's the kind of reference that wouldn't be made today. Right, or a reference that carries through. It's not like a Jeff Koons. Right. She's like, wow, love the painting, babe, but I gotta run. She goes downstairs. He like walks her to the cab. She says she's going downtown. And then he's like, hold up. I'm going to jump in. I'm going to West Broadway and Broom, of which Charlotte immediately is like, you're going to Club Chaos, which what was his plan? You just assume that she wouldn't know where that club is? I don't think he really cared to conceal that. I think he was being overtly sketchy at this point. And she's like, why are you going to Club Chaos? And what does he say? He's like, look, I get what you're doing. I like it. He doesn't say it this way, but he's basically like, I respect where you're coming from. Yeah, that's good wifey material, but I need to get my dick wet. So excuse me. 
<laughs> but I love that he's like, well, if you're going downtown, we might as well share a cab, right? You just showed her like a painting worth a hundred grand. Like surely you can book your own fucking yellow cab. Well, do you think he made her go Dutch on the cab? I hope not. Samantha, maybe not a great friend because I guess she abandons Carrie. We don't really see this scene, but she does end up going home with Capote Duncan. Who then is like, you know, I have an early meeting, so you can't stay over, which does seem to hurt her. That was such an interesting way that Kim Cattrall played that scene because all of the actions and words that Samantha has said up until this point is that she fucks like a guy and she has emotional sex. But the way that she portrays that is like, oh, yeah, of course, I'm totally fine with that. Clearly not. Clearly not. But also, I do believe that she has an early meeting also. But yeah, there's something about it. I guess the power move is like, yeah, I'm not going to stay. Also, future Samantha will talk about the fact that she doesn't want men ever spending the night. I think there's something about this episode. They couldn't actually have women successfully have sex like a man. Right. You know what I mean? Like, they just didn't want to actually go there, which I don't know why, because... This would have been the perfect opportunity. Like, Samantha doesn't want to stay over. She just met this guy at a club. Yeah, who wants to, I mean, have sex with a man, sure, but sleep in their bed? No, thank you. Yeah, gross. I don't know their snoring situation. Meanwhile, Carrie is still stranded downtown outside of Club Chaos on a desolate corner in what looks like the meatpacking district. And this is where the show, like, fully veers into neo-noir territory. (laughs) But of course, Mr. Big pulls up in his town car and comes to her rescue. Well, hold on. There is a voiceover where Carrie is like, I might have to do the unthinkable walk home. Which it's like, lady, you're going to walk from West Broadway and Broome to 72nd and 3rd Avenue? I think not. (laughs) Yeah, that's crazy. It would make sense if in the pilot it was like, oh, even in the pilot they understood that Carrie lived downtown. But no, because Big arrives with not Raul. Who is this man driving the car? (laughs) And she says that she lives at 72nd and 3rd Avenue. So yeah, she gets in the car. They start to chat. She says that she's a sexual anthropologist, which Big asks if she is a hooker, which is a very 90s unchill way. Now you'd be like, so are you a sex worker? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, the way that you said that was just so campy to me. Um, Yeah, absolutely. And she's like, no, I write about relationships and I'm currently researching an article about women who have sex like men, which Big instantly says, but you're not like that. Don't tell me what I'm like. I instantly got defensive like on her behalf, even though I know that he's right. He's right, but also it's like, because he doesn't know her, is this negging? Maybe. She's trying to be flirtatious, and then Big goes, I get it, you've never been in love, which is also like, go fuck yourself. No, that's really rude to say to someone that you barely know. Well, but also, Carrie is 31 at this point, and I mean, I myself was pretty relation- relationship vanilla. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you've got to keep that in. Sorry, guys, we've had some walk. <laughs> But I was pretty underdeveloped when it came to relationships, but I had certainly been in love by the time I was 31. Or is he trying to say like, oh, you've never actually been in love? 
Like, real, real love. Yeah, I think he means real, real love. But this doesn't make any sense. The conversation started about, like, having emotionless sex, which has nothing to do with love. It's sex with the absence of love, by definition. She's like, oh, and you have? And he's like, not even a 1%, not even a drop. And it's like, oh, the big that is established over the years has definitely fucked around. Oh, absolutely. And clearly no stranger to a sex worker. Let's be real. If this is based on like an actual... Finance bro. Yeah. Real estate guy, for sure. So he finally drops her off at her apartment, which by the way, finance bro with his own driver aside, I would have given a different address or been like, you can drop me on the corner. (laughs) I don't want this stranger knowing my actual address. It could get American Psycho. It's bad enough that he knows I write a column. Can I just say before I was in my current relationship, A danger I was getting into with online dating is people would ask me what my job is. And one, I was struck between what's less embarrassing, screenwriter or podcaster. They're equally embarrassing. But I would go with podcaster and then they would be like, what's the podcast? To which my joke was the daily. Like, I'm not going to tell some guy that I met on Raya, the our podcast name? Yeah, no, that's too weird. All they had to do was Google my name to find the podcast. This is how lazy men are, Chelsea. <laughs> well, I'm grateful I don't have to date them. <sighs> anyway, she's dropped off at her apartment. Big is about to drive off. This, to me, is the most noir moment where... He's about to take off in his chauffeured car. She knocks on the door, and then they have this exchange. Wait. Have you ever been in love? Absolutely. Which is so iconic that it is echoed in the final moments of the series finale. I once called it the last scene in a post and people got on my ass. I know. The last scene of the series finale is is that brunch with the girls. You mean the last scene in front of her apartment? Yes, that they echo this moment, which is the last scene in the pilot, in the penultimate scene of the series finale, when he drops her off back at her apartment. Different than the one we see in the pilot. Right. And she asks, oh, do you want to come up? And he says, absolutely. So good. Love it. And I believe that. Big has been in love. Well, we know he's been in love because he was married to that editor that Carrie stalks. <laughs> Later in this season or was it the second season? No, it's this season. Because Carrie learns that Big had a threesome. Right, right. Okay. God, we got to do that episode. We've been so scared to do season one. We need to get into it. Yeah, well, we're doing it now. So how many Manolos would you give this episode? You know what? I don't think it's the Chardonnay talking. I'm going to give it 10 Manolos because without (laughs) it, we wouldn't have the rest of the series. I agree, except for I'm giving it 8 out of 10 Manolos because of Susan Seidelman, because of the grittiness because we see Miranda eating fried chicken at a midtown (laughs) buffet, and because it is the first episode of this beloved show. So averaged out our two scores, it would be nine out of ten Manolos. Nine Manolos. Nine Manolos. For the pilot. All right, we did it. We ventured back to season one. On the eve of the 25th anniversary and the impending release of season two of In Just Like That. I had a horrifying thought, Lauren. Are we going to be like alive for the 50th anniversary 
is this still going to be a part of our lives in 25 years? Yeah. Yeah, You think so? Yeah. It's like it follows. Oh, this is our version of it follows. Well, until then, (laughs) we will be back next week as always. All right, guys. We love you. Bye. Bye. Bye.